0: And we will explore the strange, unusual, upbeat, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting. interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So Every year, you know i got to have a holiday episode, and this one is no different. We are going to talk to Michael Crondle, uh, who is a food historian and artist as well, uh, we're going to talk about holiday traditions, especially as it comes to desserts. So we're going to talk about the gingerbread man, the Christmas cookie. Uh, We're probably going to hit Hanukkah and maybe a little bit of Thanksgiving. So we're going to talk about holiday desserts, how we got them, how they evolved, and where they stand now and why they're so delicious. So let's get into this. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show today. Let's uh, let's rock and roll here. Well, Michael, I got to ask you the first question I have to ask you. Uh, is it, it's Krondel. Am I pronouncing that correctly? It's Krondel. Yeah. Krondel. Now that, I love that name by the way, because that sounds like a Christmas dessert. Um, yeah, you know, we're going to get into some Christmas desserts. Do you have anything in your family, any particular dish that's named after you? Do you have a namesake in, in the culinary? I, world?
1: I do not, but a uh, Krondel mit Schlag sounds like a good thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> so schlag, which schlag is what the Austrians. So the name is originally Austrian, and uh, Schlag is uh, whipped cream, which uh, the Austrians <laughs> will put on anything and everything. Although right. I probably should not share this with my wife. Yes,
0: Crondel <laughs> with whipped cream—that's great. That's, <laughs> that sounds delicious. Uh, that's funny. I mean, it's a great name. And so you're—you know—you're a—you're a dessert master. You were um, a, a food connoisseur. Uh, you were a chef, I believe, a current culinary arts instructor. You do a lot of different things. Let's talk about your food bona fides first, uh, your bona fides, before we get into the um, some of the other stuff I want to talk about.
1: So, so you want to know if I'm legit, right? I want to know if you're legit, Michael. I'm trying to vet you here. <laughs> so, so I have a background um, of having gone to cooking school. So I went to cooking school uh left cooking school and then worked for a while actually for quite a while in restaurants but mm-hmm. somewhere in there i also got an art degree mm-hmm. and so the day job was kind of cooking and to be perfectly honest cooking is pretty rote it's a kind of a factory job and so at a certain <laughs> yeah. point i got really interested in this idea of okay well maybe i can write about food mm-hmm. and i'd always been interested about food and history because what actually uh, okay I really do like eating dessert. Yes. But this, but so that's the secret. That's the secret. Uh-huh. The official version, however, is that I'm really interested in food and history. Okay. And particularly the social history of food and why dessert is interesting, mm-hmm. which is, of course, when, when I went to Vienna to do research, I had to eat six in a row, why dessert is... Interesting is because it is unnecessary. It's inconsequential. Oh, how dare you? And so I've written about spices. I've written a lot about sweet foods over the last few years because they tell you about what a society kind of values, mm-hmm. what a society, how it's made up in terms of its social structures. It tells you a lot about a person's culture, right? Mm-hmm. In a way that potatoes don't particularly, or rice doesn't, because we need that stuff, right? We need potatoes, we need rice, we don't really need our brownies.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, I spent, I did a a research, uh, a study abroad in Ireland, and they might say the the potato thing might, uh, you know, those might be fighting words, because the potato was an extraordinarily nutrient-dense food, you know, way back when, before we, you know, Genetically modified all the the um, good stuff out, so that you know requirements. I think can kind of change not only with as you mentioned culturally, but also um, as we use food in the modern age, as we had uh, changed fundamentally changed food. Some of those things I think can be adjusted a little bit.
1: I think that's true, but the importance of the potato to the Irish and to other communities that have depended on it was it was sustenance. Right. You don't have potatoes, you die. Right. Fair enough. You don't have a soccer tort you're okay. <laughs> so why do you need it, right? I mean, yeah, I can yeah. tell you very easily why I need the potatoes, and I know it can tell you why it's important to the culture because if you don't have it, you die. Right, right, right. But if you are think about chili peppers, nobody needs chili peppers to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody needs, you know, an apple strudel to survive. Nobody needs a chocolate chip cookie. Well, some of us do, but most of us don't need them to (laughs) survive. Right. Well, I work very
0: closely uh, on another podcast that I do. You'll find a lot of shameless plugs for myself and for your things. Um, Dr. Michael Denon, he he is driven. He is fueled by chocolate chip cookies. So he might have some words with you there on those in particular. But I understand what you're saying. Uh, I mean, it's interesting to think about dessert because I want to get how you define it. But before we get too long on this food path, I'm afraid i got to take a little detour here because, you know, you wrote the book Sweet Invention, A History of Dessert, which we're going to talk about. It's our holiday episode. We're going to get into specifically Christmas or holiday, Hanukkah, uh, even some uh, some festivist dishes here. But you mentioned art school. You kind of glossed over it, but you're quite an established artist. I mean, you've been doing, you know, exhibits and exhibitions and galleries since, you know, the 80s or whatever. I mean, you've been doing this a very long time. This, in some ways, you live two parallel lives here, Michael. So I would be remiss if we didn't at least mention your artwork. And hopefully, there's some crossover between food and art. You know, are you a gingerbread house master? Do you create, ex- you know, exorbitant architecture out of cake? You know, what are we doing here?
1: The interesting thing about that is that uh, so I went to art school. I did years and years of art history. Mm-hmm. And when you actually talk about sweet foods, they often very closely relate to movements that are going on in the art world at the time. So that if you look at desserts in the Renaissance, they kind of connect to Renaissance, let's say, sculpture, painting. If you look at the same in Victorian England, they're making these things out of sugar that kind of looks like a cuckoo clock or some sort of ornate Victorian. I always think of the Albert Memorial in in London, Mm. which is this huge, ornate, kind of ugly, monument to Prince Albert. (laughs) And you look at the cookbooks, and they're doing the same thing. So there is that connection. So my art history background was actually super, super useful in understanding a dessert to the point that, particularly in the Renaissance in Italy and a little bit later into the early Baroque, you would actually have the same artists making sugar sculptures Hmm. as we're making bronze sculptures. Wow. So Bernini, the guy who made, uh, you know, who built part of St. Peter's, the guy who built the famous Trevi, or designed, I guess, the famous Trevi Fountain, there are actually drawings that he made. He was apparently best buds with the Queen of Sweden. Wow. That's a long story. Sure. (laughs) Probably a fun one, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Best buds with the queen of Sweden. Uh And he was designing all of these sugar sculptures for her table. Okay. So this is like the most important artist of the 17th century. If I got my dates right. Mm -hmm. The most important sculptor of the 17th century is making sugar sculptures. Wow. Okay. So there is an intimate connection and the explanation for that is kind of you were Renaissance slash Baroque artist, you did stuff for hire, right? Yep. So, oh, we need, you know, a giant sculpture to go in the middle of our piazza, you do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I need a sort of a small-scale sugar sculpture for my dinner party, <laughs> you do it. Right. They're all freelancers. They were all work for hire. Yeah. So that's kind of one story of the connection. The other side of the story okay. is, and it actually took me a long time to figure it out. So Both food and art are physical objects, right? They're things. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: They're not like music. They're not like literature. They're things. You can pick them up. You can look at them. You can turn them around. And you can consume them in a sense, you know, the one literally, right, and the other one more visually. And what interests me about the food, I mean, I like eating it, but I actually like talking about it. Mm-hmm. almost more than I like eating it, okay, or equally, let's say. Okay, interesting. Whereas the art, I like making it. So it's kind of like, over here I'm the maker, and over here I'm the critic, and the two together somehow fulfill two weird needs that I have. Two deep, dark holes in your soul? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: I like that that comparison. It's interesting, because the word consume is... It's kind of funny when it's used there, right? Like, food you do eat, and then it goes away. Art, you don't really... When you consume it, you just take it in and process it. It still exists in the world, so someone else can eat it. But, you know, if you're eating a, a gigantic, you know, cake or a sugar sculpture... Once you eat that part, you can't give it to anybody else, which is amazing because I was just watching, uh, I mean, this is a, a perfect analogy here. You're going to love this. I was just watching a Simpsons episode and for their couch gag in the beginning, they had someone cut up a bunch of food. It was a it was a Thanksgiving episode and then create like, you know, Simpsons characters sitting on a couch made out of food and then they pour gravy on it and that's the end of it. You know, it's the gag or whatever. But I was thinking to myself, oh my God, someone just spent hours building that. And then in a second, it's gone, and then you never see it again. So in some ways, food is food art is very ephemeral. Or, you know, look at ice sculptures as well, right? You may not eat the ice, but it melts and it goes away. I mean, it's kind of sad in a way that that doesn't live on. The food sculpture, the food art part of it doesn't live on. It exists for a very specific moment in time. And in some ways, that's even more poetic, wouldn't you agree?
1: It is poetic, but it also... um When it comes to visual art, sculpture, painting, whatever, the analogy between food is, of course, inadequate or um, only partial, because in some ways, food is also like performance. So a meal, if you stop to think about it, is a performance. Mm -hmm. There is a presenter, there's a director, there is an audience, Mm -hmm. and there's this thing that exists for a certain period of time and then disappears. I always like to compare Broadway plays to fancy restaurants in New York City because in both cases, there are sets in both cases. There are in essence servers. There is a product. They cost about the same. It's going to cost you. (laughs) (laughs) They take about two hours. Sure. And at the end of it, you have a very similar kind of product. Okay. For lack of a better term. Experience? Experience. That's maybe the product, a better term. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, I do think that there is, I mean, it's certainly true that historically the French have always thought of cooking, but particularly pastry making as an art, as an applied art. Right. Kind of like yeah. fashion, right? Yes. Or jewelry making or something like that. Something you need a lot of training for, something that goes in and out of fashion relatively quickly. And something that is historically was something that only the very wealthy could afford, actually.
0: I mean, almost like a trade.
1: Yeah, I mean, sort of. Well, except that a trade more like uh, Armani than you're a local plumber. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: right, right, right. Uh, there wasn't like a union, I guess. But yeah, No. right. But I was thinking something. There was could... a
1: union. Actually, there was a union. And that, that, of artists? you can go there. If you want. Uh, no. no, not not for artists, for pastry makers.
0: <laughs> we may go there. That, that I like that. Well, I want to get to um, I want to get to dessert because how you define dessert is interesting. But I got one more question uh, before we go into that. You know, you do you have a large collection of antique cookbooks? I mean, you quote them a lot. I mean, cookbooks and a lot of ways you've referenced them already as being uh, you know, kind of the the moment where what's going on in the zeitgeist as it relates to food is kind of captured in literary form in these cookbooks. I mean, it tells you what was going on either artistically or what was available and people were doing what were, you know, uh, do you do you have like a large collection? And I imagine you've, you've read a bunch.
1: I don't, I don't. And the reason I don't is partially, I don't have the money. Yeah. Because these things are often expensive. I don't have the space because I live in New York City. Yeah. But the perhaps the most important thing is that these are all have historically been available in libraries. right? Uh, so they have these, you know, um, collections of 16th, 17th century cookbooks. And that's how, how I started was going into physical libraries and digging these things up. Mm-hmm. However, over the last 10 years or so, so much of this has been digitized. Right. And I recently did a project where I was trying to prove that something to do with chili peppers, because that's my other interest in food is <laughs> spices yeah and right. you wrote a whole book on it get, yeah i wrote a book yeah. on it and it, it actually connects with christmas a lot in terms of yeah the sweets right but i was trying to prove something about spices in europe they were introduced relatively early and so i managed to basically pull up pretty much all of the spice books that were written in the 16th century wow okay uh with copies from here and there and there and you know this particular version this particular version this particular version mostly to learn that everybody was just ripping everybody else off right nothing changes <laughs> right <laughs> sure right so there were essentially like three texts and like by the end of the century everybody had just quoted everybody else the three texts yeah. and had quoted the people quoting everybody else
0: sounds like the internet sounds like sounds like the analog internet yeah. so <laughs> much it was
1: so much like yeah. that yes
0: Wow. I mean, that's interesting when you think about it. I mean, in some ways, that raises the question whether people were actually cooking like that or they were just thinking that's how everyone was cooking because they copied the first guy. Who was there's only one guy
1: cooking like that, and they all just copied and pasted. I think that's the other thing about cookbooks is, like, if you go to your Barnes & Noble today and look at the cookbooks, how many people are actually cooking that stuff? Right.
0: Yeah, right. right? That's a good— That's a good. Yeah. Same thing yeah, in yeah.
1: 200, 300 years ago.
0: That's it. I mean, yeah, I imagine they didn't have like celebrity chefs back then, but I'm, you know, they might have. I mean, you know, you still had people who were royal, working for the royals or whatever, but were they writing cookbooks? It's an interesting question uh, that I don't know, but I imagine all of them, or at least through this cookbook research, you figured out when dessert happened, right? Like I want to get to dessert here because I have a sweet tooth, Michael. And I would be remiss if we didn't we didn't get to it um, because I got to know why do I like dessert? Where did it come from? Was it always sweet? I got a lot of questions here, so start. Tell me how do you how do you define it first um, for for the structure of your books and for our
1: conversation? So this is the difficulty of what people call what they call, mm-hmm. in other words, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Sort of. Sort of. Yeah. So. What we call dessert is a very specific kind of uh, direction, very uh, specific origin, which is dessert comes from the French word dessert, which comes from the word for desservir, which comes from the fact that in the Middle Ages, they would have a bunch of stuff on the table, they would remove it or unserve it. Mm. Deserve, right? Yeah. Deserve it. And then they would put something on the table. Right. Something else on the table. So that was the thing that they put on the table after they'd taken all the other stuff off. <gasps> okay. Right. The problem with that is that it kind of at that point meant something different. It probably meant a bunch of dried fruit, mm-hmm. maybe even fruit fruit, mm-hmm. and possibly some cheese. It didn't really mean what we would think of as dessert. Okay. So fast forward sometime into the kind of the court of Louis XIV, 17th century. And now the French are serving everything buffet style. So you get this giant, think of a, a cruise ship or something, <laughs> or hotel right. buffet. Sure. i think in Vegas. Ve- Vegas stuff. works too, right? Vegas has gigantic. Vegas. Yeah, okay. Perfect. All right. All right. So they put everything on a giant table. I mean, people can afford this stuff, right? Everybody else is eating gruel. Mm-hmm, right. But um, the people who can afford something better than gruel uh. will put the roast boar and the roast pheasants and the pies the fish pies and what have you on the table all at once and there'll be enormous amounts of food because that's how you show off your rich and in the middle of it there'll be little sweet things like creme brulee or other kinds of custards or little apple tarts or little donuts or something like that sure and then they would take that away. They'd bring on another big old course. That would be the second course. And there'd be a few more of these sweet things interspersed. The term hors d'oeuvre, mm-hmm. you know, or as in like an appetizer, yeah. were these little dishes because they were outside of the oeuvre or the work. Okay. All right. And then at some point they figure out, okay, two giant courses is not sufficient. We'll go with a third giant course. And this third giant course was all sweets. So it was pastries, it was candy, it was uh, cookies, you name it, it would pile this stuff in giant pyramids. And this sort of is what we think of as dessert, this final course, except that they're not calling that dessert, they're just calling that the third course. Okay. Fast forward another two hundred years.
0: taken humans a wildness. This, this is a this is an evolution right. a process.
1: Yeah, this is like this is evolution. Yeah. This is the evolution of dessert. Yeah. Uh, what is it that we sort of started on all fours, and then now <laughs> we eventually get to the point where, right? We get um, a Charlotte Russe. Right. <laughs> right. So you get into the 18th century, and this whole thing of surveying. You know, buffet style doesn't really make sense because this made lots of sense in aristocratic households because, you know, you're the prince of Condé and you invite everybody for dinner and you have lots of food, servants, 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 lots of food, servants, 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 lots of food. In all these cooks and chefs and pastry chefs and dessert chefs that have been working for the aristocrats, of course, all lost their jobs in France. Right. Because there was something called the French Revolution. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: A lot of people out of work. A lot of people off. Yeah. Yeah. A lot lot going on there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A lot going on there. But the aristocrats either escaped to England or they lose their heads, literally. (laughs) And now you got all these unemployed chefs and pastry cooks and candy makers. And so they set up shop. Mm-hmm. And this is actually where the restaurant as we know it originates hmm. because you got all these guys out of work and it is guys, right? Right. These guys out of work. And so they open up little places to go and eat. And of course, now you're sitting down at a restaurant, a giant buffet isn't going to work. Right. Yeah. They they hadn't gotten to the Vegas bit. Yet. Right.
0: Had, America's per, America's changed that a little bit, <laughs> but uh, yeah, back then. Yeah,
1: so we're, yeah. America always sort of reverts a little bit. Of, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So now now they're just serving, instead of serving buffet style, which they used to call service à la française or the French style, they now go to the Russian style of service, which now they call service à la russe. And this is like one meal you know, one dish after another after another after another. So you sit down at the restaurant, and I'm like, I'd like one of those, then i like one of those, mm-hmm. and so on. And now finally we get to what we think of as a meal that begins with something savory, you know, an appetizer, then there's a main course, and there's usually France, so it's a whole bunch of main courses, right? Mm-hmm. And that eventually you get to this final course or courses that are called Dessert or dessert. Got it. So it takes kind of from the middle ages when it's a bunch of nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe some candied fruit <laughs> to the 19th century where it becomes an actual course unto itself, right? So that's like dessert which is something that refers to a course in a meal. Got
0: it. And it becomes french pastry finally. I mean that's and somewhere in right.
1: there, there's French pastry too. But here's the thing that's a problem for me always. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's call it a semiotic problem. Okay. All right. Because we eat sweet foods all different times a day, right? We There's lots of food that we eat for dessert. And then there's food that we eat that are sweet that we don't think of as dessert. You know, breakfast cereal. Americans typically <laughs> do not eat breakfast cereal at the end of a meal. Right.
0: Well, yeah, and kid- there's more sugar in <laughs> yeah. it than there is in that piece of pie. I mean, there's a cereal called Cookie Crisp.
1: So, <laughs> I mean, right. Or you know, something like that. Yeah. Or you know, kids come home and eat their Oreos with their milk. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not like a dessert course or mm. a donut for breakfast. I eat. Right. Right. Waffles. You know what I yeah. Mean, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Waffles. Yeah. So there's tons of sweet foods that we eat that aren't technically dessert and that's why I sometimes kind of like say sweet foods and dessert because it's a little hard time – I have a hard time putting them fully and thoroughly into their particular slots. Right. Well, one is like a
0: course. One is something you have after a meal and other things are things you eat. You can eat sweet things without it being part of your meal. I mean, nowadays, right? I mean, because a lot of what you do is the history of food. And, you know, the way we eat now is very different than the way we... Ate before, and it's also interesting, at this point, you know, I, I did a whole episode on how the military um, has affected the way Americans eat food, and, you know, you're talking about a lot of the sugary and foods that we have now, a lot of that was used as preservatives, so a lot of the food we eat now during the day has a lot of sugar, salt in it, which is directly related to the military history, so in a lot of ways, we eat more sugary foods now than in any point in history, so I'm guessing if, you know, the ancient Romans were here, everything, we would only be eating dessert to them, really, um, if you were to qualify it as a food and not as a course of a meal.
1: Right, except that dessert is invariably sweet. Right. As of, you know, whenever. Right. So we do we do elide the idea of sweetness and dessert, mm-hmm. but... So desserts cover, dessert covers part of it, right? Right. But not all
0: of right. it. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, I mean, it's interesting because as I was reading this, you know, I think you talk a lot about sugar like sugar becomes the key to this whole thing the availability of sugar because i think you mentioned in your book how before you know uh, before it was real before i mean before we started enslaving people and having them harvest sugar for us sugar was very difficult to get and extraordinarily expensive and so some of the early cookbooks that have as you start getting into you know what were the things that were made around holiday time the the ingredients were extraordinarily expensive you don't think about that so sweet things were very rare if i'm understanding it correctly
1: they were very rare and they were very much way a way of showing off right so that like a grill like you put like you know that, you have gold teeth or you have you know a lot of chains yeah. that's how you show it
0: off now back then it was sweet food
1: right or or these days you get a custom made wedding cake that costs you $60,000. <laughs> right. That's still a way of showing off.
0: <laughs> right. I guess so. Do they have $60,000 wedding cakes? I'm not in that Oh, breakfast. yes. Do they? they okay. Do. All right. Clearly I'm not one of the I'm not one of the 1% obviously. That's that's nuts, Michael.
1: Yeah. 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 But that's a way no, to show I, it. I, I I was trying to figure out at one point one of the Hearsts got married a little while ago in um, I want to say in San Francisco, but some, somewhere sort of in that area, in the Bay Area. And I was trying like crazy to find out how much they paid for the wedding cake because the wedding cake was six feet plus high <laughs> right. and covered with all sorts of gold and you name yeah. it. And I just like, that particular secret uh, eluded me, unfortunately. <laughs> but I, if, if that was less than $50,000, I'd be surprised. That's
0: amazing. Shows you what I know, Michael. Shows uh, you what I know. Well, I want to figure out how, um, because one of the things that makes the holidays so great... You know, amongst all not only cultures and religions, uh, is this idea of having very specific desserts for the holidays. You know, we you know there's there's Christmas cookies, there's you know Hanukkah latkes, um, you know there's the Festivus meal. These these are kind of interesting. So I'm curious, how do we go? How do we go from establishing desserts? to then kind of establishing traditional pieces. Before we get into specific stuff, I, I'm kind of curious how we get specific religious or cultural desserts for the
1: holidays. I'm going to go back to a slightly... to, an, an, to an, an analogy that maybe doesn't connect so much to Christmas but connects to Diwali in India. Okay. Partially because... In India, they had sweet foods way before anybody else did because they figured out how to cultivate sugar. Right. So sugar was ubiquitous. However, sugar was also very much associated with dairy, and dairy was holy. Okay. Because in uh, in Hinduism, cows are holy. Everything they produce is holy, whether it is, you, know, you name it, the liquid that comes out of them, it's holy. Mi-
0: milk or manure, it's holy stuff.
1: Right. And... So often it was actually priests who were making the sweets in India. Okay. So you go to the temples and it is the priests who are making them. And if you go to make an offering to the God, you typically bring something sweet as an offering. Hmm. And I had someone explain this to me in this kind of analogy, which is that God is sweet. By eating something sweet, you become as one with God. Okay. And... I know that sounds a little bit weird, except when you think of the Catholic Mass.
0: (laughs) I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you.
1: So this idea (laughs) of ingesting something so that you become like something is very, very common.
0: Yeah, I would even say the Catholic Mass is probably one step up. I mean, that's akin to cannibalism. Whereas, you know, just yes, having something sweet is just being, you know, it's more like magical thinking. Um,
1: you right. Know. You are not eating the god as you do right. in a Catholic mass. Right. You are simply consuming um, a, uh, a quality that the god has <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Very different. But you Very find different. this sort of analogy in consuming sweet foods in just about every culture And specifically, if we think about Christmas, or more specifically, St. Nicholas Day, which is coming up in a few days on the 6th of December. So the idea of eating gingerbread in medieval Europe becomes very much associated with this. So you would make gingerbread saints that you would then consume, Mm. and these gingerbread saints were sweet. They often were scented with spices, like gingerbread is scented with spices. Right. And the association there was that sugar is precious. It's coming from the East, which it was at the time. So are the spices. Everything, All of these things are being sold by an apothecary, a druggist, a, you know, a pharmacist. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny to think about, but yeah. <laughs> well, you know, think about what sugar has been used for. Mm. Historically, it's been made used to make the medicine go down. Right. Is what I think. <laughs> As Mary Poppins so wisely told us. That's right. So the idea here is that in consuming these sweet spices and consuming this sugar in shaped in the shape of a, a sage, saint, St. Nicholas, mm-hmm. you are actually somehow imbibing the flavors of paradise and therefore somehow you are coming closer to that. Hmm. And this idea of making things into shape that you eat, you know, we're pretty much left these days with gingerbread men. Right. But there's a long tradition, particularly in Germany and other parts of Central Europe, of making things in the shape of X. So you make it into shape of a heart and you give it to your sweetheart so that in in consuming that heart, I mean, it's a, the symbolism not, is not exactly subtle, right. but <laughs> in right. you make yeah. that heart yeah. – you are somehow becoming closer to the other person. There are roosters that have have been traditionally made, and roosters are a sign of virility. Mm-hmm. So, well, you get, uh, there. I get the idea. there. Yeah. And in parts of Italy, they'd have these what they refer to ex, as ex botos, which are things made in the shape of, for example, a couple. So a couple would eat it before their wedding. At first they would have it blessed mm-hmm. by the person. right And then they would consume it. Um They make these pieces of gingerbread in the shape of limbs, so that you got a broken leg, Mm -hmm. you get it blessed, you eat Mm -hmm. it, boom, you're set. Well done.
0: Well, I was who needs.
1: (laughs) You
0: know, who needs help? (laughs) Right, what's a cast? You can just eat a a cooked leg or a cooked uh, cookie. Uh, I was reading this article about gingerbread men are are particularly interesting to me, as is the gingerbread house. Uh, But I was was reading this Time article, which I'll put up on the website, and I was reading about um, how... The uh, the ancient Greece would make honey cakes, which were similar to gingerbread. And then I saw your name pop up, and I realized it was quoting you, <laughs> well, they were, which was kind of cool to see. So I know you're going to agree with this. Uh, but th- that the Roman men, we're going to go a little blue here, but this was kind of interesting. And along the same lines, that Roman men would eat anatomically correct honey cakes before orgies to stimulate their sexual appetites, which is very Roman, by the way. That's extraordinarily Roman. Um, but also, it, it also is that connection between I'm eating something, I want to generate my appetite, and then I'm eating, you know, the uh, the various body parts that I want to be stimulated. Uh, there's a lot going on there. You know, there's a lot of trying to connect yourself with an act, with qualities that I think, you know, that's what you're kind of getting to, right? That's the essence of this?
1: Sure. I mean, you are literally, you are what you eat, right? Right. And here it's quite literal. Right. And I think that there's this kind of, Virtue slash whatever you want to call eating anatomically correct body Mm -hmm. parts. That represents one thing, but also people will these days abstain for sugar, right? From sugar. Mm -hmm. And that is a way of virtue signaling. You know, Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. have discovered that sugar is terrible for me and therefore no 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 I won't eat that particular cupcake. Right. Right, that makes sense. So it flips in terms of that so that whereas consuming sugar for the wealthy was a sign of privilege at a certain point because nobody else could afford it, by the time you get into the 19th century – sorry, I'm a historian. I have to go back a couple hundred years. Right. By the time you get into the 19th century, sugar was cheap enough. And again, why was it cheap? Because we were exploiting human beings to mm-hmm. grow this stuff. Right. But it was cheap enough that in Europe, during during the French Revolution, we're getting back to the French Revolution. The center of during the French Revolution, women rioted in the streets. Literally, there's accounts of women riding the street demanding cheap sugar Mm -hmm. because they'd so gotten so used to having sugar in their morning coffee. (laughs) Wow! So it's kind of. I mean, I'm sort of thinking of. (laughs) <laughs> the millennials riding in the streets because they can't get their $5 cup of coffee. Right, right. <laughs> 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 that
0: is so funny. I mean, it's uh, societies are so similar. When you go back and you really look at history – Nothing changes. Human beings are fundamentally, we're the same selfish people who are entitled and get used to situations so quickly uh, that, you know, we turn on a dime and take down our governments because we didn't get the sugar that we wanted. The cheap the gas isn't yeah. cheap enough because we're used to gas. It doesn't matter where we get it or how, it you know, who's exploited. It's it's interesting to think about. I mean, when you, even when you come down to desserts. I
1: like the analogy, though. It's like Americans run on yeah. gas and the French run on sugar. <laughs> <and coffee. laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Right. I mean. It's close, you know. Um, so I have a question about gingerbread men before we leave that, because I was reading, and I, some of these stories, I don't know if they're apocryphal or not, and hopefully you'll you'll set me straight if they are, but the classic story is that the gingerbread men were kind of, maybe it wasn't created by, but definitely popularized by Queen Elizabeth I in the 16th century, where she would kind of make cookie figures of her favorite people at court or dignitaries. Is that, it sounds like the the, the tradition of the gingerbread Cookie or and and cookie shaped like things goes back way further than that. Was she more of the popularizer of it, or is this just a way to make it more recent uh, and make it English?
1: I think it's a to make it English because the area of the world that was really known for its gingerbread was Germany, Got it. Uh, right. and the Netherlands. But you know, the Netherlands are hop, skip, and a jump over to England, mm-hmm. and there was a slightly different seasoning mixture put into the British one than there was into the. The German one, because just a different national palate. Obviously, Queen Elizabeth the 1st wasn't going into the kitchens to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Right, 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 right. Let's be clear yeah, about that. Straight. Yeah, That's pretty straightforward. Yeah. However, did she have a sweet taste? Absolutely. She was notorious for having horrible teeth. Oh. And in fact, the British in general, and I think there is one portrait with her with all these blackened teeth out there. Really? But anyways... <laughs> People would go to England, Europeans uh, from the continent would go to England, and they were just kind of like, how can they eat so much sugar? And Mm -hmm. this was before this was before the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. So they got into eating way too much sugar early on and kept doing it so that by 1900. Particularly among the poor, apparently in England, Women got as much as fifty percent, fifty percent of their calories wow. from sugar consumption. That's a lot. The men got the meat, but yeah, just shockingly. <laughs> that is a lot. I mean, that
0: that is quite a bit, and especially at a time when it, when it was so rare. Uh, but you mentioned this national palate and the spices. This is something that's kind of unique to Christmas cookies. And I want to talk about this a little bit because you know uh, spice cookies is, have their root in medieval cooking: ginger, cinnamon, nutmeg. I mean, my mom would hoard when I was a kid; would hoard jingles, which were you know anise-spiced uh, cookies. They were delicious, but it's not like anything else you taste throughout the rest of the year, except with like spice drops. Spice drops have also are, are very spicy candy. But how did this come about? Was it again about you know showing off that you can get a hold of these spices, or was it just something? that was kind of in vogue at the time?
1: They were expensive. Okay. That was it. So that people would, in fact, hoard sugar, hoard spices. They would spend the extra money for the holidays to make these uh, different kinds of spiced uh, sweets Mm -hmm. that the spices were available Mm year-round. But the idea of using them to season this special occasion is certainly um, specific to specific to the time. There is a possible other reason, which actually it just occurred to me, and I hadn't really kind of processed this before.
0: It's an exclusive? This is an exclusive information. It's an exclusive. I love it.
1: It's an exclusive. But what happened was that in the Middle Ages, the people who ran the spice trade and actually later on the sugar trade, because they, at one point, controlled all the sugar in the Mediterranean, were the Venetians. Okay. Now, Venice today is an amusement park. It's always hard to imagine this being, like, one of the most powerful cities in the world, right. but for a time it was. And the spice fleets would come in at the end of the year. It had to do with the weather Okay. because the Mediterranean is hard to navigate in the middle of winter. So they would pick up all of these spices in Alexandria and Egypt, and they would arrive in Venice— kind of November-ish. And then they would, of course, send the stuff all over Europe. So there may be something going on there as well. Uh, I'm not 100% convinced of this one because by the time you get into the 16th century, it's the Portuguese who are bringing it in. Mm -hmm. But where are they taking it? They're taking it to the Netherlands. So the Netherlands gets all these spices from the Portuguese and the Netherlands and then Central Europe become very famous for their gingerbread because they're getting the cinnamon, they're getting the cloves and so on, the pepper too. Well,
0: that, I mean, that's an interesting thought. So basically the people who get it or it's available to them are the ones kind of showing
1: it off first and saying like, hey, look what we have, kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also people just saving up. But You find a lot of nuts in, you know, almonds and this sort of thing also in these Christmas cookies. And that's a game because... That's when they're available. That's when they're harvested, and that's when they're distributed. Right. I like. Th- I mean, I like that. It is a very unique thing about Christmas cookies
0: that they they are. Kind of, they do have a whole different. I mean, sugar cookies are popular, and those are pretty generic. Um, but but the spiced cookies, I love them. I love gingerbread and all that type of stuff. The jingles, my mom's jingles. Uh, but I want to take a step back. I want to go back to France. Here, we're jumping all over the historical map, but I want to talk about France because. One of the first things that I ever made as far as a Christmas pastry was when I was in French class in high school, we had to make a bouche de Noël. uh, (laughs) And I had a picture of it. It was a Polaroid. And it was hideous. I mean, let's be honest with you. I didn't do a very good job. It was the first one I did. And for some reason, I've never told, I haven't told the story very often, but in the Polaroid there were numbers that were burned in. If you squinted, you could see numbers on the Bouche de Noël. It was like seven, eight, six, or something like that. And I remember at the time thinking that that meant something, and I went out and played the lottery. I either bought a scratch offer or something like that, using those numbers, and I won. Now, obviously, it wasn't life-changing money, uh, and I think it was completely a coincidence, but still a pretty cool story, which made me never forget the bouche de Noël, which is just, as I was researching it, just like a Yule log. So I want to know, how did this come to be? And this is also one of those unique points in time where you're making a cake to look like a log. So, you know, food and art are coming together here in a Bay's that you have to love and appreciate.
1: I, I like the Buya Bays reference. thank you it's good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I hope I just hope that your cake did not look like a Buya. It it's close <laughs> too similar
0: for my for my taste. <laughs>
1: we think of Christmas as this kind of ancient you know festival celebrating the birth of Jesus. And all these rituals going back centuries and centuries, and the reality of most of our Christmas traditions is they're about 150 years old. Mm -hmm, Right. Most of them were invented in the 19th century. You know, uh, Christmas trees, uh, the the gingerbread houses, most of the cookies that we associate with them are actually sort of a 19th century invention. Candy canes as well, which we'll get used. We'll talk about candy canes, of course, right? Even Santa, Santa Claus, yeah, right? Santa very Claus is a 19th century Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. So 19th century and Coca-Cola. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. But so many of these traditions are invented in the 19th century, and the Bouche de Noël is a classic example of that. So in olden times, you know, before the 19th century, if you were an aristocrat with your chateau out in the Loire Valley, you would on Christmas because Christmas the holiday begins on Christmas in Europe. It doesn't begin on Halloween as it does in the United States. <laughs> At the end of summer. <laughs> in the summer, right? When are the Christmas decorations going on? Yeah. Somehow Thanksgiving has disappeared. It just goes from straight from Halloween to Christmas. But in the olden times, you had the 12 days of Christmas, which would actually begin on Christmas Day, I guess, Christmas Eve, and culminate with Epiphany, the three kings. So you would have a yule log in your giant chateau fireplace that would burn for 12 days. And this yule log tradition was French and English, and I'm not sure who came up with it first, but they shared the tradition. So now you're no longer a aristocrat. You're now a banker with lots of money, but still a banker living in a nice apartment in Paris. But it's a fourth floor walkup. Right. It's a nice apartment, but it's a fourth floor right. walkup. And you no longer have a giant fireplace. You've got a little stove in the corner of the apartment. Right. You're not going to get a Yule log and drag it up the steps. <laughs> right. So some confectioner, and it's not actually clear who exactly came up with Mm -hmm. this, they decided, well, let's make a cake that looks like a yule log. You'll bring it up the stairs and you'll have it at Christmas. Mm -hmm. And so somewhere in the mid 19th century, the first references begin around then. You get confectioners or dessert makers making these yule logs that people could make. They could take them up to their nice bourgeois apartment Put them on the sideboard, and everybody say, "Oh, what a pretty thing that you bought!" Right? Because right. no sensible French person would actually, well, make that in their home because French Parisian kitchens are miserable. Right? <laughs> so they go to the local corner where you've got somebody who's been doing this for thirty years and can mm-hmm. actually knows how to bake, mm-hmm. and you bring the thing home. So that's the tradition. Now, the thing that has been going on over the last maybe 10, 15 years or so mm-hmm. is that now all of the patissiers are competing who can make the coolest, craziest Yule log. Okay, I like and it. And now if you go to Paris or just Google, you know, Bûche de Noël Paris. You'll that's get easier. A- that's easier, by the way, than easier? going to Paris. Well, yeah. less fun. And cheaper. Less Definitely. Fun. Definitely. Less fun. Yeah. You can... Get ones that are in the shape of a double decker London bus. You can get ones in the shape of. Uh, I, I remember seeing one in like a, a schoolhouse. In terms of uh, you know any. And it looks like a log. Hold on. It looks like a log that's in the. A they log stop in the looking shape. like logs. They don't look like logs anymore.
0: Oh boo. Okay. All right.
1: But they're still called to Noël.
0: I don't like this. I don't like <laughs> this. I'm not. I don't approve this.
1: I like the log. I like looking at a
0: cake that looks. As close to a piece of wood as possible. Now, to me, that takes a lot more skill.
1: If you saw some of these, you'd be pretty impressed, I gotta tell you. I'm sure I would be. I'm sure
0: I would be. I'm playing the hard game here, but I'd probably be very impressed. But I would be disappointed because I do think that the Yule log part of it is really cool. You know, the holly cookies, as little leaves coming off it, and the berries. And some of them are amazing. It looks like bark. Uh, I like that. I don't know. That's me. I'm a traditionalist.
1: No, I mean, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I think that gingerbread should look like gingerbread. And I think bustin should look like bustin Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, what do you think, speaking of gingerbread, as, we, as I'm jumping around here, I'm doing a great job. Uh, as I'm jumping around, what do you think about like gigantic gingerbread houses? Because I, I was looking at the one, uh, it was in 2013, they set a record for a 40,000 square foot gingerbread house in Byron, Texas that required a construction permit. What do you think about that? I mean, do you like these gigantic gingerbread houses or would yes. you like, it?
1: you do? Really? Yes. I like it all. Okay. Even I like it all. I like it all for a couple of reasons. Okay. I like it all because the history of pastry making is I think I don't want to say littered because that's the sort of a derogatory term, but is characterized there we go. There you go. Like is that. characterized by invention. Okay. And the reason I call my book Sweet Invention is because I think that invention is at the core of it and it's this competition. It's this competition for eyeballs, for taste buds, for all these sorts of things that explains kind of explosions of pastry inventiveness in different spots around the world. So Vienna, 1900, explosive inventiveness in all the fields. Uh, Paris around the Revolution, explosiveness in all sorts of fields. You know, the Renaissance, etc. Right. So, I think that. Pushing the envelope is great. Now, here is where I hesitate sometimes. And it has to do with this kind of television phenomenon of amateurs competing to make the biggest, ugliest thing possible. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sure. And they don't have the skill set. They don't do a very good job. And the thing is just big and ugly. So if this... Thing, this gingerbread skyscraper uh, looks good. I'm a hundred percent in favor of it. If the person really knows what they're doing, I'm a hundred percent in favor of it. If they're just doing it to be big and awful, then thumbs down. Definitely. That's not. That's not for you. <laughs> no, that's
0: not for me. No. Well, that, speaking of big and awful. What do you think, I, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about fruitcakes really quickly, because a lot, of this gets, it gets a bad rap, but it's, it's, it's completely entangled with Christmas. You know, um, there's the joke about, you know, it lasting forever, getting passed on, you know, all, yeah, you know, re-gifted every year, but they're not so bad. Fruitcakes are all right. I've had one before. Where did this tradition come in? Because to me, when I think of Christmas, fruitcake is the top on my list.
1: Right, right. So fruitcake, and again, one of the interesting things about Christmas is that a lot of foods have a kind of a half-life in that they disappear from the rest of the menu, but they sort of hold on during the holidays. Right. And I think that fruitcake is one of those things, right? So that fruitcake, you go back three or 400 years, everything was a fruitcake. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say everybody was a, but everything was a fruitcake. Yeah. So any big cake was a fruit cake. You had a wedding. It was a fruit cake. You were celebrating elections uh, in the United States, in the early United States. Hmm. They would have these so-called election cakes. Interesting. Massive, massive things because you'd have to feed everybody, right? Right. Um, That's also how you'd get other than... um, giving them whiskey to drink, you would give them fruitcake in order for them to vote for you. I think that still goes on in Florida uh, by law, (laughs) by law rum, I think. But um, yeah, so fruitcakes were ubiquitous. They were everywhere and they kind of were all over Europe and then they get to be less and less in Europe, but they held on in the United kingdom. And so, you had this tradition of fruitcakes, and so there were nothing. They weren't a Christmas specialty; they mm-hmm. were just a thing, mm-hmm. right a special celebratory thing. And as technology moves, as tastes move, they kind of start to disappear from all those other events. Mm-hmm. But hold on with Christmas, and it's absolutely true that in the UK they're still very much associated with Christmas. And you know, you pour brandy on them. You. Flame the thing and it's pretty fun. It's pretty cool. Um, I think part of the problem in the United States with fruitcakes is that because Americans, A, because of the way the laws are written and B, because Americans are so such traditional Puritans when it comes to booze and food. Right. (laughs) They don't have enough booze in them. I mean, a fruit cake has to be soaked in rum, brandy, what have you. <laughs> right. Now, of course, it's good then. Right. But yeah. if you take all of that moisture out of it, it's kind of miserable.
0: Right. Yeah. So we're so not eating it, it properly.
1: They're not, they're not. Exactly. And the other thing is often the fruit is, um, the fruit is second rate. I have a friend in India who periodically sends me a fruitcake and he's got this, uh, plantation where he candies all of his own fruit wow and it's just amazing this thing
0: other i imagine it's otherworldly it it is not the same fruitcake i mean it's a totally different thing
1: exactly but because he happens to be christian so he does this thing for christmas and being in india of course all the spices are fresh and all the fruit is recently candied right and But he doesn't put enough booze in it, I have to say, because it's India. So when it arrives, I just kind of take my rum bottle and just very lightly
0: sprinkle. Of course, of course, you don't soak it overnight in it, but just put it on top a little bit. Uh, I mean, that's it's really. I mean, the fruit cake is such an interesting phenomenon. I mean, because it's so foreign in some ways to to some of the food that we eat now. Uh, Let's let's move on from Christmas. I want to sneak into Hanukkah here a little bit. Now I know I've got lots of Jewish friends. Hanukkah isn't. The Christmas of their particular holiday calendar. But it does have some pretty unique food items that are particular to the holiday. My favorite being gelt, uh, which I think, (laughs) I still to this day think that gelt is my favorite type of chocolate. And these are, if you don't know, these are little chocolate coins, Uh, that you get in, like, little bags all over the place. I love this stuff, but this has a very rich history as well, including, you know, people who make their own gel. You don't just get it printed in the store, if you can imagine that. There's a whole history to this uh, that I'm sure you know
1: about. Yeah, I think the Treasury Department has some rules about that. Do they really? Some of of it is American (laughs) money. Yeah, yeah, that that would be funny. (laughs) Uh, No, but, but again, it goes back to why do you eat money mm-hmm. to be rich, right? You eat right, money yeah. to be rich, and that's why you give people money so that they will be prosperous. Right. And so you are prosperous at the end of the year. And like a lot of these things, again, yeah, 19th century invented, because before that, they didn't know how to mint mint candy or mint chocolate in that particular shape and wrap it. Right, Chocolate as we know it is pretty much an industrial product. Yeah. So... That goes back there, but Hanukkah is implicated with sweets in most of the world, though oddly, or historically, has been in most of the world. Although oddly enough, in Eastern Europe, it wasn't. In Eastern Europe, it was potatoes, mm-hmm. right? Right. Laptes, yeah. yeah, yeah, which are not sweet. Although a lot of Eastern European Jew, uh, Eastern European food tends to have a lot of sugar added to it, so it's not. It's a potato pancake, but you eat something sweet with it, right? Applesauce. Applesauce, yeah. Well, that's interesting because that has to do with the oil of
0: Hanukkah. Um, but I was reading I was reading this interesting article. This is on reformjudaism.org, so I apologize if that is not uh, the voice of the Jewish people. Uh, but this is kind of interesting because there's the story there is that uh, the, the Jew, uh, people who uh, who are celebrating Hanukkah in France were influential in the geese fattening industry. Uh, which was key to foie gras, and that they basically would take geese fat, a potato, and an onion, because all of those things were pretty cheap, and then you could make a latka that kind of represented that a miracle happened there story, which is the whole center of Hanukkah. Uh, I thought this was kind of interesting because I didn't know it started with geese fat, I, I don't know how that would taste. but in just like you said, this is more modern than it is like a historical food, which I think kind of flies in the face of what we think of when we of any holiday tradition that goes back hundreds of thousands of years. But in a lot of ways, many of these traditions are pretty modern
1: they are. And again, I am not an expert on reformed Judaism or Judaism in general, but to the best of my knowledge, this elevation of Hanukkah, Had very much to do with, again, in the 19th century, um, when Jews were allowed to escape the ghettos in most of Europe, they had this huge holiday Christmas and they kind of needed something to at least compensate for a little bit. So Hanukkah became much more of a bigger deal. Right. (laughs) However, to go back to sweet foods, which is my thing I need to talk about here. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. Let's do it. So... The latke thing is very much of a central eastern european jewish thing and i'm actually skeptical that it started in france i think it probably started with geese yes goose fat name but goose fat name mm-hmm. in places like hungary right okay in israel these days and actually in germany in its day and in the mediterranean in many cases it wasn't potatoes that were fried it was donuts so oh, wow. if you look at Early uh, recipes for various kinds of fried dough in Syria, in uh, North Africa, and so on. Jews would fry dough, not technically a donut, but something similar, for the holiday, and then they would dip it in honey, and it'd be sweet and delicious, and all that sort of thing. Right. And again, to represent the oil in the lamps that burned for the, the... am I going to get it right? It's 11 days. Eight days. Uh, sorry, eight days. I think you think 12 days of Christmas, eight days of Hanukkah. Minus, yes. Right, right. <laughs> I'm trying to picture them. A, <laughs> a lot of numbers.
0: A lot of numbers. You're not a mathematician.
1: Dang right. It. And the other thing is that if you take those two numbers and add another number to it, you will probably be able to make some money on the lottery again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. Don't tempt me. I might, I might just do it.
1: Um, but anyway, so yeah, get yeah, back to this. Yeah. So in Central Europe, particularly in Austria and kind of Southern Germany, places like that, there's this long, long jelly donut tradition. Mm-hmm. So they make something called Krapfen and mm-hmm. it is your basic jelly donut, which is where we get our jelly donuts. Initially it would have been filled with something other than jelly because jelly was too expensive, but again, by the 19th century, right? Uh, right. Jelly donuts, are ubiquitous. And there, the tradition was to serve these, not at Christmas, But later on in the year, in February, whenever basically Fat Tuesday is. Mm -hmm. So the the traditional thing for Fat Tuesday, which is why Fat Tuesday is called Fat Tuesday. Right. Because you fry in fat. Because then you couldn't eat fat uh, for several uh, weeks after that. But so this jelly donut tradition travels with the Jewish diaspora to Israel and now these days, something called sufganyot, which apparently was a completely made-up word. Ancient Hebrew does not have a word for jelly donut. <laughs> no, get out of here. <laughs> and huh.
0: it's not in the it's not in the Torah. That's it's weird. not in jelly donuts or not. <laughs>
1: So now they have these sufganiyat, and apparently there's these competitions, and they fill them with anything you could possibly imagine. So there are all these kind of new wave uh filled with, uh, you know, creme brulee or things sure. like that. Yeah. Sure, sure. They doctored them up a little bit. Sure.
0: Uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I love that. That is, the jelly donut is not my favorite, but if you put a lot of other things in it, you know, one of my favorite donuts growing up was a, a frosting filled cream donut from Dunkin' Donuts, which I wouldn't touch now, uh, but you know, I, I've done that before for sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. All right, so we're, we're coming up on our time here. We've, we've missed a lot, but hopefully, can you stick around? I want to get to Thanksgiving. You called it the forgotten holiday here, Michael. I don't want to forget it. Can we do a bonus episode, 10 minutes on Thanksgiving?
1: Sure, we'll do 10 minutes on Thanksgiving. I love it. All right,
0: we're going to talk about pies. Pumpkin pies are my favorite. But before we do that we got to tell people how to get this. We only scratched the surface, obviously, only uh, on desserts. We definitely didn't even scratch the surface. But on holidays in in particular, uh, where can people find your book and and where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you?
1: You can uh, track me down at michaelcrandall.net that's probably the easiest thing and as far as sweet invention it's available at a bookstore near you and there is an audio version of it too if i remember correct no wait a second you know what there isn't an audio version of it but there is a there's a digital version of it as well as a hard copy
0: you should do the voice for the digital or for the audio version you should demand it uh, I you should got a great I voice should. for it yeah, yeah. of yeah. course
1: get a little extra get a little extra
0: dough as they <laughs> so say extra fried dough yeah and, of course, you can find our show, Fascinating Nouns, on Twitter. It's at Fascinating Noun, Facebook at Fascinating Nouns, and FascinatingNouns.com if you want to find all things of the show. Uh, but, Michael, this has just been a great a great trip, a great educational experience because I love all this you know, Christmas desserts. I want to know where they came from, and you're the guy for it. So thank you for all that information and for being on the show today.
1: That oh, was a pleasure.
0: Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode you're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is, once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of FascinatingNouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.